Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober, covering lifestyles in the world of real food. On my show, I have all types of guests. Some of my most common ones are CPG brand founders and cookbook authors. So how about one which is both? My guest today is Anna Vaccino. Anna wrote the cookbooks Eat Happy and Eat Happy Too. She now has an Eat Happy kitchen line of consumer products. Both of her cookbooks promote a gluten-free, grain-free, and low-carb lifestyle. Anna, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. It's great having you on as a guest. We met a couple months ago at the Fancy Food Show in Las Vegas, and I just thought it's amazing what you do. Your books and your product line very in focus with what the appropriate omnivore blog and podcast are about, so I'm glad that you were able to make some time out and come on here. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I'm so glad we got to meet at Fancy Food Show because it's such a whirlwind of a show and there's so much going on. It was great to connect. Me too. There's a lot of stuff to see there. So it's always good when you are able to connect with the ones that you want to. Absolutely. All right. So let's start. Tell us how you got involved with cooking. Well, I got involved with cooking a long, long time ago, and I don't have an idyllic story like my grandmother taught me how to bake or my mom was just an amazing cook. My mom was a single mom, and she worked a bunch of jobs, and she wasn't home, and so I kind of had to fend for myself, and we didn't have a lot of money, so I would have to get really creative with what we did have in the fridge. I was also entrepreneurial from a young age because when you don't have a lot of money, you have drive to get some more money. So I would make things, sell them in the neighborhood, whatever I could figure out, do yard sales, because ultimately I liked to have a little bit of money in my pocket so that I could have yummy food. Food's always been a priority for me. And I learned how to cook from working for catering companies and from watching cooking shows as a child. I was only allowed to watch PBS as a child, and so I watched a lot of Julia Child and the Frugal Gourmet. And I just thought, oh my gosh, can you imagine if I could actually have a whole chicken to roast? Wouldn't that just be divine? So I went into the entertainment industry and still am in the entertainment industry as a voice talent and a comic. But something I found that I could do in my spare time was cook. I could make recipes. I could make wonderful things. And unlike the entertainment industry where you have to wait for somebody to call you, you can be creative right then and there and then eat the fruits of your labor later that day. So I really enjoyed cooking from that perspective. It was a way to channel some excess creative energy. I love Julia Child. And I think it's amazing how so much of what she cooked on her show is very much important today with living a healthy lifestyle because she was very big on using a lot of fat, stuff that we're afraid of. Right. Yes. For sure. Eggs, milk, butter, cream, all those things. At the time, we were starting to hear the messaging. In the 70s, when I was coming up in the early 80s, we were hearing the messaging of go low fat, you got to have low fat. And then there's Miss Julia Child who's there saying, put the butter on, use the cream, which is the basis of French cooking. So, <laughs> and she wasn't wrong. Now it's vindicate Julia. Julia is getting vindicated for sure. One of my favorite quotes by her is if you don't want to use butter, you can always use cream. <laughs> That's great. I love that. That is so great. Yeah, no, she was, was a huge influence. And also, too, I guess what I didn't realize at the time, all of those techniques that she was using, the French cooking techniques seemed so 
fancy and far out of reach because I think I was of the generation and you probably were too. We were sold a little more of like, you should make things convenient. You should microwave things. You should reheat a frozen dinner. And so to see her do those techniques seems so complicated, but then when you get in there, it's really not. And I was really glad for whatever method of visual osmosis to learn those techniques from her. She's such a revolutionary in what she did because there weren't any shows before about people cooking on TV. And in fact, now there's a series on HBO Max that's a reenactment of everything that happened. And I think it's a wonderful show just that it explores all of how the show got off the ground. Well, I'm kind of obsessed with it, too, because, I mean, her journey obviously started long before I was born, but I do remember being so heavily influenced by her and watching her and being inspired by her that it's really cool to go back and watch that HBO Max, to go back and watch and hear about her origin story. She has a fascinating story and also what a role model for women to have somebody of a certain age say, I'm going to start my career at this age. I'm going to start this second act and do gangbusters with it. Oh, that too. And I think just anything that we see in terms of podcasts or TV shows about food, I mean, I feel like I have my podcast because of her. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I agree. And listen, I've been cooking for years, but I didn't start the CPG business, the sauce of the spice business until 2020 when I was 47 and now I'm almost 50. So it's, this is life. <laughs> this is life. Who starts a business that late? And I'm here to tell you, do it. Just do it. I started my podcast after 30 and in the entertainment industry, some may see that as old too. So same kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We'll get into the CPG in a little bit, but first, let's discuss the cookbooks. What do you see the goal of your cookbooks as you had written them? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I was diagnosed with celiac disease a little over 20 years ago, and so I feel like I was gluten-free before it was that cool. You could argue that it's still not that cool, but before everybody was doing it, I guess, before it became a fad. And my favorite was several years ago when Jimmy Kimmel was interviewing people on the street, asking them what gluten was, and nobody had any idea. But then he was like, but are you gluten-free? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> nobody knew what it was. So celiac disease is basically you just have to avoid eating gluten. And that's the only way to maintain it. So I was gluten-free early on, and I hated all of the options. So I started cooking stuff and blogging about it because I wanted there to be good gluten-free options. And that's when fellow moms were reaching out to me and, and kids who had multiple autoimmune and trying to come up with delicious things that they could also eat. But also I wanted my friends who ate gluten and dairy and whatever else, I wanted them to be able to come to my house and eat something that I made and not be like, well, it's good for gluten-free. So I wanted it to taste really good no matter what, no matter what, if you had a dietary restriction or not, you would enjoy what I was cooking. So I always kind of came at it from the flavor being the first thing. I mean, I guess gluten-free has to be the first thing, but flavor's got to be right there or else I'm just not going to make it. So the goal of my cooking shifted when I started podcasting with Vinny Tordrich and he wrote a book called Fitness Confidential and it just really spoke to me and it spoke to me enough to launch a podcast and produce a podcast for several years. And it's still going on now. I'm no longer the producer, but I'm still uh, co-hosting it. And I shifted my focus from gluten-free to entirely grain-free. And so my goal is to have a wide variety of foods that people can eat if they choose that they're going to go low-carb that you could make and the whole family will want to eat and enjoy. So I've kept that culinary perspective of it's got to taste good. And I warn people, I'm like, if you're the only one in your household that's making this lifestyle shift, just be warned that everyone's going to come after your food. 
because it's really good. You're going to be making yourself some yummy food. So you might need to make extra because that's the life that I've lived is finally my husband eats the way that I eat and he goes after all of my food. So my goal is to give a wide variety of foods. And then I still have a dessert chapter. I use real sugar in my desserts. I don't use the artificial sweeteners. I believe in changing your lifestyle, but not going on a diet. For me, it was a permanent change. That means I want to eat homemade food and I want to eat whole food. So hopefully it accomplishes that goal. We now have two cookbooks with over 300 recipes. And then I just turned in the manuscript for the third low-carb Italian cookbook, which should be out next year. That's great. I love your dessert section. So for those, do you use some natural sweeteners or do you just recommend regular sugar? Well, here's the thing with sugar. And I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who works with ingredients. To your liver, sugar is sugar is sugar. Whether you're eating a quote-unquote natural sugar or just plain cane sugar, table sugar, sugar is sugar. So I tend to stick with the more natural sugars, coconut sugar, honey, date syrup, maple syrup. What I always say is I try to make a sweet recipe with the least amount of sugar possible in order to make the recipe work, which is why sometimes you'll see some desserts in my chapters that don't have any sugar because I managed to make those work without any added sugar. Great. But for the most part, for example, pumpkin pie. So pumpkin spice is one of those flavor profiles that is activated with the sugar. That's why you have cinnamon sugar. You have cinnamon toast that has sugar on it because cinnamon smells amazing. But if you taste it without sugar, it tastes like dirt. It doesn't work. You smell it and the smell is a big component of it, but the taste is not there without something to sweeten it. So I discovered that when I made my first pumpkin pie without any sweetener whatsoever. And it was so interesting because it smelled fabulous. And then you taste it, and it tastes like you're eating dirt air. It was so strange. It was the strangest taste sensation. So I added back in a little bit of sweet, and I got it right to the point where, to me, it's the perfect sweetness, especially if you've given up processed foods for a while. Your palate will reset. You don't need as much sugar. And, in fact, if you give up sugar for a while, and then you go back to eating something sweet, which, by the way, 100% of people who give up sugar go back to eating something sweet. And you should. You should have something. You should treat yourself from time to time. You should celebrate life. But if you go back and the first thing you eat is a Ralph sheet cake or some sort of crazy processed thing, it's going to punch you in the face with a cloying amount of sugar. So you'll have fruit. I make the joke in my first cookbook about how I'm the a-hole at a party who's like, you guys, these strawberries taste like candy. They're so sweet. And then people look at me funny and they're like, no candy tastes like candy. But to me, the fruit can taste really sweet. So to answer your question, long answer short, I do steer towards the natural sugars. However, sugar is sugar. So I don't want to pretend like a coconut sugar is any healthier than table sugar to your liver. It all spikes your blood sugar, if that makes sense. That does. So do all the recipes contain natural sweeteners or there's some where you call for just regular cane sugar? A little bit both. I like to choose the sweetener that complements the flavor profile. For example, I don't use maple syrup a lot, but I use a tablespoon of it along with coconut sugar in the pumpkin pie recipe I was talking about earlier because maple tends to bring out the pumpkin spice profile really well. So it's about matching it. And then some things I'll use regular cane sugar because you need it to kind of be in the background. And then some things I'll use honey because that honey flavor profile complements that particular recipe. I would agree with that. I think some recipes, they do call for cane sugar and that's at least better than the GMO beet sugar, high fructose corn syrup, certainly. So sometimes you need that. But yes, there are some recipes where they work perfectly fine with honey or maple syrup, coconut sugar, many options. Absolutely. And by the way, coconut sugar is less sweet and a little more dry 
than regular brown sugar. And so you might need to mess with the quantities a little bit. I mean, if you're adapting a traditional recipe. And listen, I came from the world of, I had my grandmother's pecan pie recipe, which is two sticks of margarine and K-Rose corn syrup. So look how far we've come to get from that to where I am today. You had talked about you have an upcoming cookbook of Italian recipes. How is your Italian heritage and culture played a role in all of what you've done? Oh, well, very much so. I mean, listen, I inherited the celiac from my mom, who was not Italian, and everything else from my dad, who's 100% Italian. My grandparents came over from Puglia. And listen, in Italy, they're very aware of celiac. They test every child before the age of six for celiac over there. So it was kind of a mystery to get diagnosed here. But the Italian heritage really plays into it because there are just family recipes from my late grandparents' side. However, it's an interesting thing because when the recipes that I inherited use a lot more processed foods in the sense that, for example, tomato juice, the one sauce recipe, that one of the sauce recipes that I have uses tomato juice. And that's interesting. And I was talking about it with my dad and he was like, well, you have to remember, like they had to use what was available at American grocery stores back in the day. There was this huge awareness when my grandparents came over of Italian food. We know it today. Now we have a whole pasta sauce aisle and canned tomato aisle. And we know about basil. Like basil was revolutionary back then. That wasn't an herb that was around. So I was like, oh, yeah. So it's funny. So then what I have done is kind of update the sauce recipes, update things to get back to the Italian roots, but also a little bit of combination of my California influence. I've been here 20 years now. And California, as you know, is paradise for fresh produce. We're just so lucky we can have access to anything. So there's a lot of influence of California in these Italian recipes that I have, but it all kind of ties together. The one thing I did not carry forward from my Pugliese roots is I don't have any donkey or horse recipes (laughs) that my family would eat in Puglia. So there's that. There's some things that I've just Americanized fully, let's be honest. I've been in Los Angeles and California for about the same time. Where were you living before that? I grew up in Washington, D.C., in Arlington, Virginia, which is the little portion of D.C. that was cut off and given back to Virginia. And then I went to Atlanta for college, and I wound up staying there for 10 years. And then we went out west to pursue our entertainment industry dreams with a two-year-old in tow. And by the way, I don't recommend driving across the country in August with a two-year-old. It was a nightmare. And we managed to make our way out here, and I don't foresee ever leaving. I love it so much. I love California. And now we live two hours north of LA in the San Inez Valley, which is kind of like the wine and cattle country above Santa Barbara. The movie Sideways, that's where they filmed the movie Sideways to give people a visual of where we are. Oh yes, one of my favorite films. And I've been to the hitching post where they go to in the movie. So yes. Love the hitching post. We went there twice. Love it. Love it too. (laughs) Yes, I also came out here for the entertainment industry. Has... Living in California changed the way you look at food? I would say living in California has changed the way I look at food, but it's also exposed me to just different kinds of food, which is amazing. Like the amount of Asian influences and Latin American influences here, which is not to say growing up in the East Coast, I had a lot of Persian food, Puerto Rican food. The list goes on and on about what's more the influence of, I grew up in apartment buildings too. That's also a great way to learn about different, because everybody lives in apartment buildings is eating each other's food. It's awesome. You always got a smell going on. You smell something cooking. And that was pretty great as a kid because 
also being a latchkey kid, I was something of a free spirit. I would just go, you know, you make friends with everybody in the apartment building and you go eat their food. It was pretty great. But moving out to California, we have the more Mexican influence. The braised meats of Mexican food is I'm obsessed with, and it works perfectly with low carb too. So that's been a huge influence on the way that I eat in El Salvadorian food and Peruvian food, stuff like that, that I was not as exposed to as a kid. So all of that stuff has kind of snuck its way in, in a good way. And there's nothing I love more than to adapt a classic for it to be low carb. Because sometimes, for example, my heritage, it would be a chicken parm. You're not going to find chicken parm at a restaurant that's the low carb version, much less a gluten free version. I've had a couple gluten free chicken parms at dedicated gluten free restaurants in New York City. That's it. But then you find out, oh, it's actually pretty easy to make a chicken parm. You can do it at home. You can make it low carb. There's a variety of ways to do it. So for me, being able to do that and have that freedom to make something at home that's like a classic that you feel like, oh, I can only have that at my favorite restaurant. It's like, nope, you can make it at home and it's really good. Kind of went off topic there, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, no problem with that. <laughs> you can go on to any topic you want. That's just a starting point of the questions I ask and I'm all for expanding it into other areas. Another part that you talk about in your book, which I like, is about finding real olive oil. What do you do to determine it's real olive oil? I mean, I was in Puglia in 2011, and I was staying at my friend Paul Capelli's villa. He and his husband had remodeled this 10-room villa and then all this property in Puglia, and you could get it on the Airbnb or the VRBO or whatever. And I was staying there, and Paul was like, hey, you know, your olive oil over there is cut. And this is something I never gave thought to. I just assumed, I think most people, you just assume when you see a label and it says olive oil, it's just olive oil in the label, right? They wouldn't lie to us, right, Aaron? And he goes, your olive oil's been cut over there. And I was like, whatever, dude, he's trying to sell me his olive oil. But the olive oil is always so good when you're in Italy. And friends of mine would be like, oh, yeah, they save the good stuff over here. They don't send us the good stuff in the States. <laughs> like They keep it over here. And I never thought much of it. And then I was back home in California, and I heard a guy being interviewed on NPR with Terry Gross. And he was talking about the olive oil being cut. And I listened intently, and I found out later it was Tom Mueller, who's the author of extra virginity, the sublime and scandal of the olive oil world. Now, I don't know him at all, but shout out for his book, because to me, it got me to turn a corner. And I kind of went down the rabbit hole of seeing, because I would buy the least expensive olive oil because I'm trying to be mindful of my dollars. And there's all sorts of marketing trickery that you can find on the grocery store shelves, like light olive oil, not extra virgin, but virgin light olive oil. Like they come up with these weird ways of wording that kind of skirts the whole extra virgin olive oil thing. And it generally means it's cut with a cheaper oil. They will deodorize the oil. They'll put chlorophyll in the oil or dyes to make it look more greenish, to have that golden greenish hue. So that was the first time I opened my eyes. And at the time, there was a UC Davis study. I don't know if UC Davis still does it, but there was a UC Davis study to see which grocery store brands were coming back whole. I remember Kirkland Organic was one that always was good. But then ones that should have been oil weren't. Paul Newman, Newman's Own or whatever. A bunch of brands weren't. So I think now, fast forward 12 years later, I still use Villa Capelli olive oil. It's my favorite. But when they're out, you still want to figure out who your olive oil people are. And I think it's a lot easier to figure out who's making good olive oil. And by the way, I'm not saying that price is the only indication, but if you're looking and you find a cheap oil that seems too good to be true, it's too good to be true because it's not cheap to produce 
nice olive oil. But the other thing is, if you're making dressings, marinades, or pan frying meats and vegetables, I feel like olive oil is just a non-negotiable. It's just something that like budget that in your budget. If you care at all about food or the oils you put in your body, try not to put it. You're not going to avoid seed oils because they're out there in the world and every restaurant uses them. And we love our restaurants. I'm not saying anything bad there, but at home, try to have nice olive oil and just do your best to research it. Again, we're in California. You can throw a stone and find a wonderful olive oil company, but becoming more available nationwide, nice olive oils. And generally you can go on a company's website and look them up and they'll tell their brand story. They'll show pictures. You'll see who's real and who's trying to kind of like not tell you any information, if that helps. I agree. It's very important that you purchase the best olive oil Tom Mueller's book, Extra Virginity, is great. And then more recently, where Tom left off, David Newman wrote the book, Extra Virgin Olive Oil, The Truth in Your Kitchen. And that's a great book, too. I had him on this podcast. Well, I'm that one up. I don't know that one. I also know Larry Olmstead I've had on my show who wrote Real Food, Fake Food. He has a chapter about olive oil, but he also has chapters about a bunch of other food fraud, let's put it. Oh, yes. Lots of books have covered olive oil as part of it. I know Nina T. Schultz and Big Fat Surprise has a whole chapter on olive oil in it. Yes, that's right. Nina T. Schultz, that's perfect. Yeah, it's really come to light more and more. And I just think that like most things in the food world these days, if you care about what you put in your body, you probably do have to do a little bit of research into it, especially something like olive oil where you're paying a high price point for it. You want to make sure that you're getting a good thing. Yeah, with me, I do a whole olive oil tasting When I go to these shows, I've learned how to taste olive oil from what they talk about in David Newman's book. And at first I was daunted. I said, oh, that sounds tough. But no, it's a process and I've really learned how to do it. Also, Cobram Estates did a great Zoom presentation a month ago telling you how to taste olive oil. And this was through Gelson's. They gave you a pack of their olive oils as well as a brand that wasn't theirs and you can really tell the difference that true olive oil, when you taste it, you feel a little burn in the back of your throat. That's right. Villa Capali, they call it the Puglia pinch. That's the polyphenols hitting you right at the back of the throat, almost like you want to cough. They call it a pepper finish, but it's not peppery per se, but it's got a punch to it. And also, too, if they harvest the olives earlier, that will be a stronger pinch. But if they harvest them later, and there's nothing wrong with the earlier or the later harvesting. In fact, sometimes I like the later harvest olive oil for salad dressings because then that flavor profile won't compete with what I'm trying to do with the salad dressing. But I'm telling you, it really is night and day difference because I went from buying the big jugs of insert giant conglomerate name brand here to actual real olive oil. And it was like night and day difference. And I still talk about it and people still don't believe me until they taste the difference. It's really like a try the olive oil challenge, folks. It really works. Same with me. I also used to buy the big jugs. And what I learned about with that is unless you have a large family, it's best actually not to buy the big jugs because they can go bad too often. So I started buying smaller ones. And so, yes, I'm less concerned about money because certainly with the big jugs, obviously that was a way to save. And now it's just more important to me to get the real olive oil. Of course, with my whole thing being knowing about the best products out there, I explore a lot of ones and I have found what are some of the good affordable ones. Like I talked about Comber Mistakes. They're very authentic olive oil. You can taste it and they do have a decent price. Yeah. And by the way, the Italians say olio nuovo vino vecchio. That means new oil, old wine. 
you do actually want your olive oil to be as new as possible. And also don't keep it right by the stove because it'll get heat damaged. And I decant mine from the three liter tin into a, what's it called? A ceramic olive oil I'm losing my nouns. What can I say? I'm turning 50 this year. I can't remember my nouns, but just don't keep it right by the flame of the stove. And yeah, go through it quickly. I go through three liters pretty quickly, but you may not. So get the 750 milliliter bottle, you know, just new oil, old wine. Yes, that's important too, to not put it by your stove, put it in the cabinet furthest away. There's the acronym HALT, heat, air, light, and time. That's what can affect olive oil from going from good to bad. Yeah. I love it. All right. So we've talked a lot about your cookbooks, and more recently, you launched the Eat Happy Kitchen line. What made you decide to get into CPG? Oh, man. Listen, I always thought, wouldn't that be fun to do that? And I would discuss it on my podcast. And then I had a listener call me in 2019 and say, hey, I lost 80 pounds cooking out of your book. I'm a food manufacturer, a small artisanal food manufacturer, and we can do your sauce. And I was just a bit incredulous, like, what? We can't, that's crazy, what? Partially because it just seemed crazy to do it in general, but I was also like, doesn't everybody just make their marinara homemade? Because it's really easy to make homemade. I just always keep the ingredients on hand and just whip up sauce literally all the time. It's so easy. And then I had to basically sell myself on selling I know that sounds crazy. And by the way, people who are going to make their own sauce are going to make their own sauce, but everybody else buys it. And so I was like, oh, great. That's awesome. I would be thrilled to be able to share my sauce with people. So we got to work on developing it. So when you scale stuff up, you go from having cups, tablespoons, teaspoons to being in volumetric and having percentages and gallons and whatnot. So we had to scale stuff up. We had to source the tomatoes. We had to source ingredients, don't want any additives or obviously no added sugar. And I say obviously no added sugar, but at the time in 2019, there were very few marineras on the shelf that didn't have anything added to it like I was doing. Now there are a lot more. The no sugar added trend has luckily caught on and people are starting to reformulate stuff. So we went back and forth to make sure I wanted it to taste like I walked into your kitchen and cooked it for you. So it had to have fresh basil. I didn't want to use dried basil. It had to have the right salt sea salt. I don't want the iodized salt. I wanted things to all set up perfectly. So we launched the first OG tomato basil marinara in August, 2020. And then have since now added on four other SKUs and then have launched three spice blends. So even though my Italian heritage plays into a lot of what we're doing and writing the new Italian cookbook and everything, my goal is to be able to have, and we're working on salad dressings that should come out in about four months, talk about sourcing olive oil. My goal is to be able to have a number of pantry items that you can rely on as being no sugar added, but still taste absolutely amazing. So that's kind of what brought me into it was because a guy called me. (laughs) that's what brought me into it because I couldn't have done it on my own I wouldn't have known where to get started now I do now I know how to call a co-packer and say hey I'm doing this can we do that and they say no and then you call another co-packer and you just keep making calls until somebody gets your vision but it took a guy calling me at first wow interesting story we are seeing a lot more pasta sauces tomato sauces that are sugar-free what I'm also noticing that we're seeing a lot more of are organic pasta sauces I saw several at the Winter Fancy Food Show, also more recently at the Natural Products Expo West. What do you think is the reason that we're seeing an uprise in organic pasta sauce? I mean, listen, if people are able to source the tomatoes 
and it's not that much more expensive to make. We're already in the super premium category. It's expensive to make food the way that I make food. If and when we scale, which is in our rollout into grocery stores, we're able to scale. Our costs will go down and hopefully the price will go down. But for right now, we're a super premium item. And so you're going to see a lot of organic because people are valuing organic as a priority. We're tired of being poisoned by our environment and we're tired of the whole microplastic thing. Microplastics are everywhere. We have endocrine disruptors everywhere, which is what microplastics are. So it makes sense that people are looking for products that are organic because that's the one way that we can make sure that if I see an organic sticker, I hope that they've sourced high quality ingredients. I know as a food producer that I will always source the highest quality ingredients, whether or not they're organic, but not everybody knows every producer of every food company. That would be impossible. You can't like be on top of it that way, but that's why I think organic is a trend. Now, listen, when I was at the Summer Fancy Food Show last year, I talked to a Croatian woman who was bringing a lot of truffle items to market and just really had fabulous products. And she was saying she was told by everybody that she better add sugar to everything for the American market or else it would never sell. And I was telling her, I was like, that makes me so sad to hear. Because, yeah, okay, maybe on a grand scale, but I'm part of the wave of people who are trying to make a difference in this health crisis that we have going on and to tell people we don't need to add sugar to savory items, guys. We don't need it. I promise you we will survive if we don't add sugar to our pasta sauce. And even on food demos, because, you know, I do a lot of demoing. I'm out there every weekend slinging sauce to the people because when you're looking at a wall of pasta sauce, Aaron, and you're not a foodie and you see this one is for $4.99 and this one is for $9.99, you're probably going to go for the $4.99 if you don't know the difference. So if what once people taste it, then they're like, oh, I see. And I explain the value of it over the other one. It makes sense. But Every now and then some people are like, oh, well, my grandmother puts a pinch of sugar in her sauce. And I remind people, our grandmothers who came over from Italy, again, were having to deal with a different set of ingredients than we do. I bet they had to put a pinch of sugar in there for that acidic, crazy tomato juice they were having to deal with instead of the fresh tomatoes. You know what I'm saying? They had a different set of circumstances. And then those become habits. If you're in Italy, they're not putting a pinch of sugar or brown sugar in their sauces. It just doesn't happen. I think another reason that we're seeing more organic tomato sauces is, say, 10, 15 years ago, tomatoes weren't as much of a problem in terms of being sprayed with pesticides. They weren't great, but it was one where you didn't always have to buy organic, say, other things such as strawberries or potatoes. But more recently... The tomatoes did make it on number 12 of the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen. Right. It doesn't surprise me. And listen, here's the thing that's super cool. Everything is economically driven. So if people want to make a change, you are going to have to put your dollars where your priorities are. So if it's a priority, buy organic. If it's a priority, buy grass-fed. If it's a priority, buy wild-caught. Because if Companies can see they can make money off this. Guess what? All of a sudden, they're starting to change over field to plant more organic this, that, or the other thing. And that's actually a good thing. So we source organic Italian tomatoes, Samarzano-style tomatoes, from a wonderful company, family-owned company. But it takes a while. And we also have to pay to secure those crops. It's a whole thing that I never thought I would be thinking about before getting into the CPG space. In addition to your wonderful pasta sauces, I know Eat Happy Kitchen also has 
some bright seasonings. Where did you come up with the idea to offer these seasonings? Well, again, I tell people this, you don't have to buy any of my products. All of my recipes are in my book. So you could just make them at home yourself. And it started with the taco seasoning that I've been making for 22, 23 years. And that was my alternative to, I couldn't believe even back then, the junk that was in the packets of seasoning that you're doing on your Taco Tuesday. And I'm not going to throw any brands under the bus, but if you look at their labels, they've got sugar, they've got cornstarch, or back then they had flour them and I couldn't have them because they weren't gluten-free. So I started making my own from scratch. And then it's so easy to just make it that I was like, doesn't everybody do this? No, they don't. They want to buy the packet of the taco seasoning, throw it in the meat and be done. So we started with the taco seasoning. We added on, I have a ranch dressing recipe. I have a ranch and a dairy-free ranch in the second cookbook. And I'm telling you, it's the best ranch you'll ever make. So I was like, let's make that seasoning. And then my barbecue dust, which is our top seller, came from a recipe in my first book, the pork chop dry rub recipe. And it's just the rub that I put on everything, steak, roast, pulled pork, you name it, fish. I put it on cauliflower pieces and throw them in the air fryer and you have these crispy barbecue cauliflower. It's so good. And that's the one we're sold out of currently, unfortunately, but we're getting more back in stock in a couple of weeks. So the thing that I learned in CPG from launching one SKU is it's better to launch a story of SKU. So we launched three at once and I'm so glad that we did. I'm obsessed with all three of them and they're all organic, but the trials and tribulations of getting them made was kind of insane because trying to find the right spice manufacturer who got the vision of not putting any anti-caking agents, no anti-slip agents, no fillers, no sugar, no brown rice hull, cornstarch, all those thickeners, things like that. Like I was like, we have to just have the spices in there. And that is kind of revolutionary. I went to my Whole Foods recently and I looked at the packets of taco seasoning and even the organic ones have organic cornstarch and organic brown rice hulls and organic dates and they have sugar and filler and thickeners in there and I was like that is not our brand (laughs) so to find the right guy and it took 18 months plus our packaging I wanted to be sustainable I didn't want to have a bunch of plastic shakers out there in the world so we use these upcycled paper canisters with aluminum plugs and we're going to go into packets for grocery, then they'll be compostable packets for grocery, which we're working on that. But we already have the canisters available direct to consumer. It was a whole process, but that's basically where it all came from, what it stemmed from. Yes, we're very much on the same wavelength. I was blown away when I saw these seasonings at the fancy food show, especially your ranch dip, because I love to serve ranch dip at parties. And I've gotten the organic ranch dip, but the thing is, those ones still have, like you were talking about, a lot of fillers. They'll have the xanthan gum. They'll have the natural flavors, silicon dioxide, maltodextrin. And yes, they're all organic, but there's still a lot of fillers. Your ranch dip has five ingredients and it tastes great. Tastes real. That's right. And I live all on the canister. I don't say spices. I don't hide anything. If there's the ingredients, go make it yourself if you want to. If you don't want to support us, you hate me, fine. There's the ingredients, go steal it and make it yourself. I don't know. To me, I have to be full disclosure because I'm so tired of being lied to that I refuse to lie or hide. I'm not going to lie about anything and I'm not going to hide anything. Absolutely. I think that's wonderful. And I love that we see it in your current products of the pasta sauces and the seasonings. Do you have any plans to expand the line into other products? 
Yes, we do have three salad dressings coming out. And again, it's one of those things. Every time I make a salad, which is at least, I would say, four to five times a week, we have a salad with almost every meal. I married an Italian man, so we're very much in that culture. We just have salads all the freaking time. So it's going to be a black garlic balsamic, an Italian dressing, and a Caesar. So we're going to be coming out with those in about three to four months. Very excited. And they'll launch direct to consumer first because, as I'm sure you know, you launch into grocery, it's a whole thing. It takes a year or more to even start to have that conversation with buyers. So I'm very lucky because I've been podcasting for 11 years. I have an audience. I have a cookbook audience. So I'm able to launch products and kind of give a test to how they do. Like, for example, the seasonal pumpkin marinara. That was a recipe in my second book. And I was like, oh, that would be fun to do for the fall. And we did it last fall and we sold out in two days. So then we're like, okay, so this past year we made a lot more. And then we did the same thing this past year with my Arabiata spicy marinara. We did it as a temporary launch. It sold out really quickly, got great response. So now we know, okay, we're we're going to add that to the regular lineup. And now that's going to be one of the flavors that's rolling into Gelson's. Awesome. And so all of your products and your cookbooks, they promote low-carb, healthy lifestyles. What do you see as the biggest advantage of living a low-carb lifestyle? Oh, gosh. Well, listen, it's not for everybody, and that's okay. And by the way, I want people to know that I understand and appreciate the irony of being a woman who sells pasta sauce and she doesn't eat pasta. Like, it's weird. I get it. And by the way, it's not like I never have pasta. I will say the pumpkin marinara with the gluten-free ravioli or cheese tortellini is insanely good, like bonkers good. And I would not want to miss out on that life experience. But I'm very intentional and deliberate about when I'm going to. I don't even say cheat. I just, when I'm going to celebrate and have something fun. So a treat, I guess. But the benefits of having a low-carb lifestyle for me are that it keeps my numbers at bay. Like, I think my numbers bordered on pre-diabetic. And then with keeping things low-carb, it keeps my numbers in check. But something like type 2 diabetes, which if you read Nina Teichel's book, you know, is a completely reversible situation if you get out of of it. And so I feel very lucky that I got out ahead of it, that I knew about this information about how to heal with food. Not everybody's going to be that case. Some people, they have to take medication. That's all good. No problem. But there are a lot of chronic conditions that we could manage if we just get the processed foods out of our diet. Now, a low carb doesn't have to mean keto. Keto diet means that you are purposely living in a state of dietary ketosis. And generally, when you go low carb long enough, you kind of have what's called metabolic flexibility. You kind of go back and forth. You can burn sugar, you can burn fat as your main source of fuel, and your body is really good at flipping between the two. It's when you become a total sugar burner and you're on all so much processed foods and fast foods that it's really hard for your body to go into the other fat burning. And that's why people, when they go low carb, they feel really sick because they're basically detoxing their bodies and moving from being a sugar burner to a fat burner. And what happens is your body also releases a lot of excess water because it's protecting you from the inflammation. So inflammation will go down, but also when it releases that water, it releases a lot of electrolytes and then people feel really sick. So I'm always like, take salt, drink water, take your electrolyte, take a magnesium, you'll get through it. And then the other side for me too, the benefit of the brain chemistry for me, the brain fog went away. I am much more focused and I named my books Eat Happy because for me, it changed my brain chemistry and I've not struggled with depression in the same way. And I really, really believe that being a sugar addict affects if someone has depression, it will make it worse. That's the whole thing that we can talk about on another time with witnessing my mom being a sugar addict and ultimately it being something that got her in the end. But for me, it seems like a silly trite title. I know, eat happy, but for me, it changed my brain chemistry for the better. 
Yes, I think it's important to note the difference between a low-carb diet and a no-carb diet because I once said to someone, well, I do eat carbs. I eat sweet potatoes and carrots, apples. I mainly avoid a lot of grains or carbs that are problematic and also sugars. And someone said to me, well, that actually is a low-carb diet. It is. That's correct. There's all different colors of the low-carb rainbow. If you want to be paleo and not have dairy, or you want to be carnivore and only eat meat, or you want to be keto and do that, or Vinny, my podcast co-host, came up with NSNG, no sugars, no grains. So basically his thing is just cut out the processed sugars and grains, and generally, for the most part, you'll be doing pretty good. If you have to problem solve beyond that, if your body is maybe not tolerant of dairy or you have a lot of nuts, it all depends on where the individual is. And I think that, I don't know about you, but I'm so tired of diet books just promoting one particular way of eating. And even with the low carb stuff, that's why I offer people the recipes that have sugar in the desserts chapter. And I say, these are meant for a treat. The problem is that when we're pecking around for sugar at the end of every meal, that's a problem. Our bodies aren't designed to handle that level of sugar on a daily basis. We're just not. And so we've trained ourselves to be really on the sugar. And then once you get off it, then you're free to pick and choose. Then you have your wits about you and can choose a wide variety of things. But until that happens. And by the way, grain-free is not for everybody either. Some people tolerate rice and corn just fine. Great. That's awesome. Do it. I'm not one of those people. (laughs) But I know my body. Everyone should know thyself. It comes back to know thyself. Right. For me, it's grains in moderation because I do like them, but I also find that they stay healthy and thinner when I don't eat too many of them. Right. So I certainly look for some grain-free recipes. And also, for me, though, grain-free often means a lot of times just eating dishes that you wouldn't even think of as grains, not so much making foods with grains with other things such as almonds or coconut flour or something like that. I call those the subfoods. When people are new to low carb, the first thing they want is pizza and breads and muffins and cakes. And I'm like, okay, I have pizza recipes. I have crust recipes for you. Everything's okay. But eventually people kind of get off. When you reset your taste buds, and not to say that pizza is not the most amazing thing in the world, we love pizza. We will always love pizza. Pizza is great. Can we eat pizza every day and maintain healthy blood sugar numbers? That could be debatable. It all depends on who you are genetically. But eventually people kind of get on to just eating the whole foods things. And then the pizza becomes the lovely treat that it is. And it's not like you have to make a pizza. I'm making low carb pizza every day for three months. You don't, you get over that. Get over the substitution foods and move on to like the actual foods, if that makes sense. So you would say that these paleo and keto flours are good as transitional ingredients, but eventually you want to move off and get more on whole real food. Yeah. For example, my chicken parm, I'll use either almond flour or crushed up pork rinds as the crust. And I never once thought I'm overdoing it, but I don't make a lot of the bake. I have recipes for them, like my blueberry muffins in my second book that's also on my website, my YouTube. The blueberry muffins, grain-free blueberry muffins is a very popular recipe. And that's because when you're brand new, even if you never ate blueberry muffins, all of a sudden when somebody tells you you can't have them, you want them. And I get that. I understand the temper tantrum phase of when you need to change the way that you eat for your health and you get very mad and you're like, why do I have to do that? That's not fair. How come Susie down the street can eat whatever she wants and she's a size eight and I can't eat whatever I want. I get type two diabetes and high blood pressure. That's not fair. I get the temper tantrum. I understand that. So that's why I provide these recipes. But then eventually you just won't make it anymore. Like you'll make it 
and then you won't make it. But I do believe in there being a wide variety of solutions and foods and innovation in food. I'm never going to demonize stuff. For example, the artificial sweeteners are not for me. They make me instantly ill. Erythritol and monk fruit and allulose and sucralose, all those things are not for me. If they work for somebody else, great. But I would always venture to say, are you using those substitute items as a filler because you're not wanting to actually move off of them? Are you using them to medicate some sort of feeling within yourself? Because oftentimes we are. Or are you just using like, hmm, I want something sweet. I'm just going to have this. But for the most part with my work, I talk to the people every day. I have a very active Facebook group. And when people are doing the substitute flowers and the substitute sweeteners, it's generally because they haven't fully committed to trying to see what their life would be like if they cooked real food for any length of time. Yes, lots of good points. You could say it's food for thought, major pun intended. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we're just about out of time. But before we go, let the listeners know where they can turn online to learn more about you, your books, and your Eat Happy Kitchen product line. Absolutely. Thanks much. com. my name eathappykitchen.com. I'm all over socials, especially Instagram. I have a very active Eat Happy Kitchen Facebook group full of people who love to cook and are very good at it and are always ready to answer questions. I try to track my recipe development on Instagram, especially my stories. I try to post reels with techniques so people can see how to make stuff. And I have a lot of cooking videos on YouTube. I'm not hard to find. If you reach out to me, please do and say hi. Perfect. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of the show are released every Wednesday. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore on your favorite podcast app or site. You can also listen to all my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus... All of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.